episode of Rankin Review. I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And we're doing another Star Wars episode. I have my dear friends Eric and Ashley Jurgens on the show. This was recorded actually quite a few months ago, and uh, it's a weird mix because we recorded it over Skype, but uh, I and Eric also independently recorded our own audio. So what you're going to be hearing is kind of a collage of those three different audio recordings. And unfortunately, at least in this episode, Ashley gets a little bit of the short end of the stick as far as the quality of her recorded voice. Um, My voice sounds clear, Eric's voice sounds clear. She sounds like she's talking via Skype. And the reason is, is because she's talking via Skype. But something unusual happened during the recording. We, re- we reviewed seven Star Wars movies, and you're going to hear the first four reviews today. But it seemed like with each passing review, Ashley got harder to understand. And, and uh, I've done a lot to try and fix that, and I'm going to use this opportunity to apologize for Ashley if there's anything that she was edited. And I'm going to take steps to make sure that the next episode pertaining to Star Wars, which will happen five or six episodes from now, um, that I do everything I can to clean up that audio and even re-record it if I have to. Now, all of that warning beforehand doesn't mean that this is going to be a hard listen for you guys. In fact, I would say that there's a a lot of interesting conversation to be had here. But, as always with Rank and Review, we're going to talk spoilers for these Star Wars movies, and I may use coarse language, you know. Ashley and Eric are really, you know, good-hearted, clean-living people. But uh, as much as I've tried to taint them, I haven't managed it. Anyway, spoilers, course language as usual. And we're going to be talking about the two Ewok movies that were made for television, The Caravan of Courage, also known as The Ewok Adventure, or, uh, and as well, The Battle for Endor. And then we'll have the two standalone Disney pictures. That's Solo, the Han Solo story, or the Star Wars story, and of course, Rogue One. This is what we're going to cover today, and I think it's going to be a treat for your ears. If you're a fan of Star Wars, well, this is easy for you. All my other ranking reviews, believe, we'll get back to our regular business next episode. I hope you enjoy talking about Star Wars, and I hope if you have any feedback to send me, you can send that to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca, 
And if you could go ahead and tell that other film freak in your life about the show, I would really appreciate it. Rank and Review drops every other Wednesday. And if you need something to fill your ears in the gaps, I encourage you to check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show hosted by Mr. Jason Dubray and also another Saskatoon-based podcast called The Terror Table. Now, let's hit the stars. It's always good for me as the host to understand what you're saying, isn't it? <laughs> so here's what I want to say just by way of introduction, uh, just while this is loading up. Um, I've already talked about Star Wars before, and I know where you guys stand. I know you guys are both fans of Star Wars. In fact, uh, I actually listened back to the Star Wars episodes, and I kind of feel bad how hard I was on the prequels, because I know you grew up with the prequels, and it's a different thing for you guys than it was for me, right? I grew up with the original Tridge, right? And when I talk about the original Star Wars trilogy, I talk about like the original effects, the matte paintings, the puppets, the, you know, the bad matte lines, and like like the original Star Wars in its in its sort of unmessed with glory is what I watched over and over and over and over and over again, and the whatever that was that original thing, I mean. I don't know if Disney has it. I mean, we're going to discuss that with this sort of uh, podcast. We're going to get into it. But in some ways, because we're going to talk both about these Ewok TV movies and the new era of Disney, I kind of felt like the Ewok movies, to me, identified closer to that world of Star Wars to me, of the original like movies and how they felt and how I felt about them. I feel like... Obviously, the production value and a lot of things are much better about the new Disney movies. But there's something intangible that just isn't translating for me. Uh, the baseline thing that I always say when people talk Star Wars to me is the original trilogy A, the prequel trilogy F, the Disney trilogy C. Now, that's very broad strokes, and we're going to get into the specifics, but... That's kind of where I've landed in these weird days of Disney. Do you guys have any thoughts of the new era of Star Wars? Maybe one or two. I think that we're, in terms of where we're coming from, we're going to disagree less than maybe you think. Because I know, I'm pretty sure this is true for Ashley as well. While the prequels were the new movies while I was growing up, and it's fair to say that I grew up with them in that sense... I came to love Star Wars because of the original trilogy, too. Uh, and so I think that, like, even though I'm the right generation for being a, a prequels lover, uh, no, I, I think that original A, prequels F, uh, Disney C is pretty spot on. I, I don't know. Maybe we'll disagree less than I was thinking, but I am excited for this episode because unlike what ended up happening with the Rockies, where we were kind of just reviewing six takes on the same movie... I think that all of us are approaching this from a similar starting point, and I expect very, very different endpoints. And we'll see as we review this stuff, but I am, I am very excited to say my piece about these. Um, we'll talk about it when we talk about it, but certainly when I do rank and review, 
I sometimes view it as a a platform to really uh you know get out my um my thoughts that I feel like I don't have uh, otherwise a way to express if you look back at the musicals uh episode which was done solely out of my hatred for Les Mis and my passion for La La Land. In the same way, I feel like I have some very, very strong opinions about these movies, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you guys. Sorry, say again, so, what, where's where you fell in love with Star Wars? Yeah. Uh, when the special editions were released. Oh, okay, I got you, yeah. You know, that hit, like, my perfect formative, um, you know, 10 to 13 age, and then the prequels came out, and they were they were fine for me at the time. They have Not aged well. <laughs> Uh, talk about that a bit, uh, but but yeah, I think I, it sounds like the degrees to which we think uh, which movies fit where in the spectrum of quality um, might differ. But I, I hope so. We're I hope we're still married by the end of this. At the end of the day, we're gonna all part friends, and you guys are gonna stay a strong married couple. Uh, I jumped again because we're Star Wars nerds and we're jumping. The voices that you're hearing, hopefully, uh, as, as interrupt as it might be, are uh, <laughs> Ashley and Eric Jurgens finally back on the podcast. And we're doing this over Skype, so uh, sorry about the sound quality. I'm doing the best I can in this broken world that we're existing in. And, uh, yeah, I guess I buried the lead there. Welcome back to Rank and Review, you guys. And, uh, you know... Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is this is this going to be episode three hundred? It's the Star Wars episode. You got to shuffle it. This has to be the two hundredth episode. Uh, I think the two hundredth episode. I don't. Well, spoilers. I think it's going to be on Tremors. Huh. That's. You want to know what? I'll say this. I think that might be a little bit more true to rank and review than, than the Star Wars one. Fair enough. I'll also say uh, to my mortal enemy, Mr. Beckman, uh, you're not at risk of losing the crown right now because I am not in it to win it this time. So I'll catch you next time, Beckman. You can rest easy for at least another few months. Well, this is the other thing we have to discuss. There's seven movies to be considered here, so the math gets tougher. And do you guys both have your own lists today, or or or? Yes. 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 Okay. Good, good. We do. Not only, Not only have I prepared my own personal list, I've also made predictions of what I think yours and Ashley's lists will look like. Wow. You're invested. <laughs> well, is there anything more this you is... guys want to say by introduction before we jump into this, like full bore? No, I think that there's nothing to say but then to talk about these movies. I think we're all hardcore fanboys here and girls, yes, so do respect. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get in it to win it. Boom. In a galaxy far, far away, a brother and sister search for their missing parents. How are we going to find them? We will. Don't worry. And fate leads them to the magical Ewoks. We help you. Now... A great adventure begins. You hear that? Let's get out of here. Watch out! Behind you! It's an action-packed motion picture. Featuring incredible special effects from the award-winning team of Industrial Light and Magic. That's Mommy and Daddy. Sometimes when you search for the impossible, an 
unbelievable adventure unfolds. I wish we had furry creatures like you where I came from. Don't miss the Ewok Adventure, now on video cassette from MGM UA Home Video. So, imagine Larry at the age of eight, if you can picture that in your brains, you guys. <laughs> um, Star Wars fever is, like, everywhere. Return of the Jedi is fresh. It's still in theaters, because it played in theaters for a really long time. And, um... All of a sudden, I catch wind that there's going to be an Ewok movie on TV. I believe I heard it at school, and I thought it was an outright lie. <laughs> but I got good and excited about it. And this is one of these tough reviews because I watched this movie in front of the TV, like sitting on my knees, like as close, getting my nose as close to the screen as my parents would tolerate it. Absolutely enraptured and in love with it because... Everything Star Wars to me was amazing, right? And I was eight. So my reaction to uh, Caravan of Courage when I was eight is going to be significantly different than my reaction when I'm 44, okay? But my affection for it, my warmth towards it hasn't particularly changed. And I will say what I said at the introduction, I stand by. The feel of these movies, in a lot of ways, feel more genuinely like original Star Wars flavor to me than a lot of what Disney has brought to the table. Um, that said, it is stagnantly paced. <laughs> it is made for children, and like it, it sort of feels like... Not that it was half-hearted in its production, but the fact that it was made for kids kind of brought everything down another full letter grade the same way sort of the TV aesthetic does. So it sort of feels like the kid-friendly Saturday afternoon Ewok adventure. But when I was a little kid, it was exactly what I wanted. This adventure of a family that gets stranded on this familiar moon of Endor and these two kids get separated from their parents. They meet the Ewoks and they have to figure out where their parents are and go on a quest to be reunited with them. I connected with the story of the little boy being very protective of his younger sister and the sort of growth that went through it because it was directed at kids and it was very, very simple. So again, as an eight-year-old, 10 stars. As a 44-year-old, five stars. But if I'm giving it a baseline review, I like it, but I acknowledge. We have some real problems here. <laughs> Where do you guys start with Caravan of Courage? As you know, someone who grew up in the, the late 80s and the early 90s, this ended up, although I hadn't seen it before, hitting me in a lot of the same nostalgic um, places. It was very, you know, knockoff, never-ending story for me. Uh, and I, I felt like I could really, for TV, I thought that the effects were really quite good um some of the child oh you cut out there some of the child acting child acting of that i actually ended up liking it quite a bit more than i expected to well the thing about the child acting and sorry you were a little bit garbled there so i'm gonna try and do a little patchwork here uh i agree with <laughs> you with what you're saying but uh 
She was an incredibly young actress. The girl playing Sid, what's her name? Uh, I can't remember. Sindel. Sindel. Sindel, thank you. Um, yeah. She was very young, and for the first movie, she wasn't even learning lines. She was performing as a mimic. The producer or her parent off-camera would say the line, and she would repeat it as close to exactly yeah. as they do. And you can totally tell once you're aware of that when you're watching the movie. And plus, she's got that sort of cute little girl sing-song delivery sometimes. The 80s were obsessed with cute blonde little girls, too. This was like a thing that you needed to have in your movie. And it's amazing how I didn't clock it at all when I was a kid. It's like, Ashley, when we talked about Return to Oz, there was that really annoying chicken. Like, any time yeah. the chicken spoke, I just wanted the movie to stop. When I was a kid, I didn't clock it at all. I was just like, that's yeah. what the chicken sounds like. Let's move on. <laughs> Eric, you've been very quiet. Yeah, I wanted to give Ashley uh, her moment to speak before I bulldozed uh, over everyone's childhood. I will say, um, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but every single time we record a rank and review, I actually have a, a recurring nightmare where it's time to record and I haven't watched any of the movies. Um, and <laughs> dreams aside, of all the episodes we've done, this one that matters the least because there is only one movie out of this group that I had not seen before, and it was Caravan of Courage. Um, and in fact, there was only two movies, including Caravan of Courage, that I hadn't seen in the last three years. So this is my first exposure to Caravan of Courage, but it is not my first exposure to Ewoks. Uh, and with that being said, I think that a lot of the leeway you guys are giving this movie, the arguments would be stronger to me if we didn't have the better version of this movie follow immediately after. Um... I will say, like, right off the bat, uh, just in terms of, like, the production value, I, I remember, uh, what was it, like, Fantastical Horrors or something? We did the episode where, I can't remember the name of it, I, it might have been something as simple as Flight or something like that. You, we had reviewed the movie where um, there's this nightmare scenario happening while these teens are in, like, a plane. Um, flight. <laughs> it was Flight, yes. And I had commented on how cheap the movie was. And you, Larry, I think took a little bit of offense to that because uh, you have quite a soft spot for low-budget films, as do I. And I want to use Caravan of Courage as an example of something that is low-budget but not cheap. Uh, clearly, they needed to make the most of a not-Star Wars budget to try and get, like you were saying, Asher, like, uh, not quite Star Wars. It's on. Both of these movies strike a lot more like... Uh, fantasy or fairy tale than they do as sci-fi um but even so there's expectations that come with stuff like that and i think that they accomplish that uh really well um i think that you know it's funny because at least in this one it's obvious they have the ewok puppets but they do not have the ewok animatronics right um but they also have things like the main i guess villain the troll which is cool as fuck the troll in this is so rad so much better than it has any right to be given the the budget or assumed budget of this film and so i would put this up as like i said a movie that is low budget but it's not a cheap movie and i don't actually have any issues with the production of it and in fact i my initial reaction was that i found the movie incredibly charming the problem is in the details of that where I 
this is a horribly written film. Um, and I'm going to say, I understand that some of that has to do with the fact that originally they were trying to target 60 minutes flat and they could not get a buyer for a 60 minute production. They needed to get it up to um, feature film length. Uh, and so I think that honestly, if someone had come to me and said like, hey, here's the original script. Here's the one after we added all of the bullshit to make it hit 130 or whatever the uh, end uh, runtime is. Uh, that that like y- you'd see a lot of the problems. Yeah, there, yeah, there's probably a really good sixty minute edit of this. Right. I don't know that I'd say really good, but there's certainly a better sixty minute edit of this. Uh, this movie suffers a lot from what I would consider unforced uh, writing errors. Writing costs nothing, and I get that. Like you can say, like, oh, and then a million orcs appear, and that costs something. So it's not like you can literally write uh, anything. But good writing it comes down to talent and to some extent circumstance. But I find that there's a lot of stuff in this movie where the writer should have known better or the director should have known better just to make things tie in together. I like there's a a lot of scenes like at the beginning they. They crash on Endor. The mom and dad are captured by this troll. So far, so good. Um, There's a brother and a sister character. The brother character is aggravating, to say the least. Um, But the sister character, she is sick, and he's trying to guard her, and the Ewoks come, and uh, he ends up... Uh, he ends up begrudgingly uh, going with them to their village because they have some herb that'll make her uh, feel better. And there's like this whole thing about they go, they give her some medicine. It's not enough. They need to go get another plant. They get the other plant. They go back. They give her the medicine. She's healed now. Uh, The end. And there's a bunch of stuff like that throughout the movie. There's a scene where um, they're on horses and they're just actual horses. They're not Star Wars horses. It's just equestrian regular earth horses uh and sindel (laughs) i i have a lot of notes about how like oh that's a ferret that's an owl um it's really interesting because uh i'll finish up my point like sindel is on a horse and the horse runs away and then they go get the horse and bring it back and that's it and there's just so many scenes that don't have any narrative weight and i don't need this movie to be the godfather but yeah, I do need it to have some amount of narrative coherence, and it really does not. And like you were saying, Ashley, like, yeah, I found the real-world animals to be distracting, because I, like, this is still Star Wars. They're on the moon of Endor, but I could not imagine Luke Skywalker touching a ferret. But there's a ferret in this movie. And so it's really weird, because it's the same props, I think, from Return of the Jedi, but it's clearly not quite uh the same thing and it follows different rules too there's literal magic in this film and in the next one um i guess the idea of magic has been reintroduced with the clone wars animated series by dave filoni but even so kind of felt like with star wars everything is on the table and especially in george lucas and george lucas by the way was very hands-on in like he didn't write the script but he developed the story for both of these ewok movies um, and I see touches, that little uh, mini pixie fairy thing. We're going to see that again when we go to Willow from George Lucas later on. And, I was going to say it's very Willow. Right? And especially the way it's presented. There's a lot of Willow I mean, practice prove the movie. effect, but just sort of the playful nature of it. Um, I understand that the movie's for kids, but the narration was very grating for me, the way it was like explaining everything. 
And it was strange how it was like really heavily used at the beginning of the movie, and then it would disappear enough that you'd think it was gone. <laughs> And then it would come back. I almost didn't mind the Hinterlands hoo-hoo of Ewoks. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, it left and then came back. And you're right, just the air in the proceedings. But yeah. there's a lot of hand-holding going on, and it's just not necessary. Even as a child, I understood they needed to get their parents, they needed to get help from the Ewoks, and a group of Ewoks came together and they would go. And even once the caravan's underway, there's just so many scenes of them, like, hanging out and camping yeah. and, and like it like there's a momentum issue but there's also really charming things for me like in the movie like i'd forgotten completely about the scene with the monster and the tree stump like uh it's first uh, oh and they're going for the medicine creature and then he reaches his hand in there and there's this big puppet that tries to eat him i i'd completely forgotten about that and when i revisited it it really did put a smile on my face there's a there is a tactile charm to the movie, but you're right when you say moving forward to the next movie, their budget goes up, and they know it's a movie in the next one. And I think the fact that they didn't know it's a movie, they had their set pieces, and they had a lot of stuff in between that was filler. <laughs> yeah, um, I. I'm very curious how legally tied to Star Wars this movie, and the next for that matter, is. Because, again, it takes place on Endor with Ewoks, but you don't see Star Wars anywhere in the credits or in the in the title. Um, it's, it's very interesting to me, uh, like, what leeway they had. Like, could a lightsaber have been in this film? I believe the Force is mentioned. It, I think it's in the same universe, or it's pretending to be, or it's the kids' version, Donnie yeah. Darko. It, it has characters. Warwick Davis returns as Wicket from Return of the... Like, it is the same character, the same actor, the same uh, the same costume. It, it, it is the same. And obviously, it's been decanonized by Disney. Um, but still, it's a movie that takes place in the world of Star Wars. It is, uh, I would argue, very unknown live-action Star Wars movie, which is... Uh, is it Star Wars? Who knows? But uh, I think that a lot of people would be surprised to know that this exists. One of my favorite conversations... Sorry to jump the gun here, but... One of my favorite conversations that you and I had, Ashley, when we were talking about Ewoks, was the revelation about the Ewoks' eating habits and whether or not they were eating stormtroopers in Return of the Jedi. Absolutely, we're eating stormtroopers. Absolutely, they were. Um, I, I, I forgot, and I meant to sort of start the, the review asking, like, people are kind of divided on how they feel about Ewoks, especially when, like, the original trilogy came out. Uh, there was this rumor mill saying they were supposed to be Wookiees, they were supposed to be, which makes so much more sense from a story standpoint, but then from a product and toy standpoint, it made much more sense that they'd be these adorable, cute little teddy bears. And like in the original film, their eyes weren't that articulated. They had that sort of glassy, distant bear quality to them. Um, where do you guys land? Like, how did you guys feel about the Ewoks? Were you always on board with the Ewoks, or did you have to be won over, or do you just not like them? Like, I'm pro-Ewok. <laughs> I'm vaguely pro-Ewok. Yeah, I, I will say that, like, I think looking back, yeah, I don't think Ewoks were the right decision for the film Return of the Jedi, but, like, I don't have any issue with them. I, like, they, it, I can watch Return of the Jedi without being like, oh, Ewoks, this ruins it, this is kid bullshit, Ugh. like, it, it's fine. I think that there were better directions to go, but the Ewoks don't offend me in any 
uh, way. And I, I enjoy watching them in this and the next movie. I think that they're, they are an entertaining species in creation. Well, I think this is the thing for me. And again, because I watched it when I was a kid, like I wasn't sure how I felt about the Ewoks. I got that it would be cooler if they were Wookiees. But this is why I'm on board for Ewoks. As dumb and drab and as boring as this movie is, when that hunter Ewok gets squished by all those rocks, I didn't like it. I don't like it when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. I don't even want to talk about it right now. The interesting dichotomy of Ewoks is there's so much effort put in, there is so much effort put into making them, you know, adorable and child friendly and really appealing from a marketing standpoint, but the world they live in is fucking brutal. Brutal. It was brutal in Return of the Jedi, and now that we know that there's fucking trolls walking around, how did the Empire get a satellite dish on that planet when, like, a four-story tall uh, troll is just walking around with the club? Or when there's things that can do literal magic? Again, they can wave their wand around. Why were they using sticks and stones when they could have transformed one of the ATSTs into a dragon eye? I think as we'll address going forward, and I think we should because we're almost 20 minutes on the first review here, uh, the, the Empire does not have their poop in a group. Whatever they call themselves, First Order Empire, their shit is not together. <laughs> so they didn't know it was on the moon of Endor, and they didn't care. But as a little kid, I liked seeing these kids rescue their parents from a giant. And I couldn't wait for the sequel, which was only one year. It was almost one year exactly away. But I was so excited, you guys. On a far distant world of enchanting beauty, a family of lost travelers find shelter and friendship among the Ewoks, peaceful guardians of the forest. But the peace is shattered. An evil storm sweeps the planet Endor, threatening the Ewoks' very existence. Run fast, run! And a courageous Earth child is left orphaned, hunted by the cruel armies of an insatiable warlord. All I want is the power. Don't be foolish, do what he says. It's a breathtaking adventure that soars to extremes of heroism, and treachery. There's no escape for you, my little one. But there is hope. A shipwrecked adventurer and his speedy sidekick join forces with the Ewoks. Their mission? Penetrate a fortress of death and rescue their friend. It's a desperate scheme that unleashes the rage of a demented tyrant. From the creator of Star Wars comes a dazzling adventure, a timeless fable of courage and conflict, of bravery, innocence, and unspeakable evil. Featuring Wilfred Brimley and the visual mastery of George Lucas. Take a journey to the far reaches of your imagination. Ewoks, the battle for Endor. Coming to your family from MGM UA Home Video. The Ewoks battle for Endor was my first lesson in film trauma. I mean, I got it again in the early 90s with Alien 3. Going to see Alien 3 in the theaters and having characters that I'd really kind of grown to appreciate being completely wiped off the table unceremoniously but I really have to say as much as I've already spilled when we've talked about Caravan of Courage that Battle for Endor is clearly better paced better made much better with the action and scale and scope and it's just it knows what it is it has a much stronger identity than the first movie in every way that opening sequence in which 
the family is killed was straight up traumatizing to me as a child. Like, I was upset. We spent that entire movie getting to know, you know, the, especially the older brother, you know, he got to learn to be more responsible and they saved their parents and they were reunited and like, this isn't how it was supposed to be to me, but George Lucas had apparently been reading Heidi with his daughters and they really got into this orphan character and he decided that they needed to make her an orphan. Like, you know, Disney movies, like so many fantasy movies must do. And I do think the movie gets over that hump and I do think it becomes sort of a fun spectacle, nostalgic adventure, which is what it intends to be and what it is. But I have to tell you, as an eight-year-old kid, this movie fucking hurt me. It hurt me. It hurt me enough that I, like, tried to save face in front of my parents as a kid. Like, I did not like... I did not like it. Teak, the little fast guy that they introduced later on, he was the thing that kind of saved things for me. But overall, I thought it was, like, unpleasantly scary and, like, bleh. I had to grow into it. I can watch it now and I just think, what the fuck were you guys doing? Like, I... I don't know how they could have thought that this would be anything but upsetting to the kids that they were directing it to. But now as an adult, I smile and say and shake my head and say, wow, you guys, you really went for it. And this movie is bonkers. And I did have fun watching it. But it's sort of a different case. Like, whereas the child me was much kinder to the first Ewok movie, the child me kind of resented this Ewok movie. The adult me, the horror fan me, appreciates that this was basically a test run for Willow, right? Again, the the fantasy aesthetic is starting to bleed into the sci-fi aesthetic to an almost ridiculous degree in this movie. Like, when there's a spaceship in the third act of the movie, you're almost like, oh yeah, spaceships. <laughs> so yeah, our main character's family is taken from her in the opening moments of the movie, and half the Ewok village is either killed or captured, and... Such begins the fun family adventure, Ewok Battle for Endor. How did you guys feel about it? So, interestingly enough, I I think this might have been my first Star Wars movie. It was either this or Phantom Menace, but definitely I was aware growing up of Star Wars, because how could you not be? I was also a child as Return of the Jedi was just coming into theaters, um, and, uh, or, or it was being released on, uh, uh, VHS. That was the big Star Wars thing when I was a kid is that like, it, it was all around because you could have Star Wars in home video. Um, and so I was aware of the Ewoks because of that, but, and I think wisely, my parents were not showing me anything Star Wars, uh, as a child. And I remember one day we were at a Rogers video um, and I found this, uh, Battle for Endor, uh, on the shelf. And I knew enough to know, like, this is a Star Wars. It might not say Star Wars on the thing, but those guys are Star Wars things. This is a Star Wars. And it was not rated PG-13. So, uh, we took it home and I loved this movie because I, I felt like cheating. I got to do Star Wars without Star Wars. Um, and I, uh... I, I have a lot more nostalgia for this. I had never seen Caravan of Courage, but this this was something I was really excited to be on the list. And actually, before we had even started this, I was trying to convince Ashley to watch it just because it was a bit of my Star Wars history, at very least. Watching it, like, re-watching it, 
I think that I uh, am blown away at how much better it is than Caravan of Courage. Like I said before, it's not, it's really not about the budget. The budget increases are noticeable and well used, but they are completely secondary to just how much better written this film is. Um, I think that they did themselves a lot of favors standing on the shoulders of the previous film. Uh, they set up uh, in Caravan of Courage the Ewoks learning English. So by the time this movie comes out, we just assume that the Ewoks have learned English from the family. Um, it, the, uh, the first 15 minutes of this movie is like a, a better movie than the entirety of Caravan of Courage. Uh, this is also my first and pretty much only exposure to Wilford Brimley. Later on, as uh, Sindel and Wicket are making their way, I guess, to go save the other Ewoks, they bump into this old man who is Wilford Brimley, who I think plays a delightful character, Noah, um, oh, what was his name, uh, Ricklin? Um And that is what I know Wilford Brimley from. I only came to know that he was known for other things later on. Apparently he says diabetes at some point. Um, but I know Wilford Brimley as Noah. Uh, the, the beginning of the movie is dark, which as a kid, because I guess I didn't have any emotional attachment to these characters, I delighted in because I was like, ha this is, I get to watch a real person movie and my parents don't even know. Um, I will say like, I, I agree with you, Larry, that it gets really dark. I do remember being a little bit, off put by the fact that the father dies because I watched this at an age where the idea of fathers dying was kind of that's not how it works they're invincible um and like rewatching it it is there is a lot of death and destruction over what is essentially a car battery um the uh the um uh the marauders are yeah. like yeah. really yes. kind of blandly bad ugly villains like take any sort of fantasy like uh, it there's not much to them but in a weird way the fact that this is all a fight over some technology that they themselves don't understand is weirdly pathetic but it also means that all this death is so pointless <laughs> like like uh, and like they have all these magic powers like the, there's a chick who can turn into a, a crow and, and like they they seem to you know yeah. have a amass this army they seem to be doing quite well i don't know what is so impressive about the power for him but uh my impression is that they vaguely understand that it can get them off of the world and into the entire galaxy but they don't they don't get it like they don't understand what that means they don't realize that that if they land on like mandalore or something they're gonna get their asses absolutely handed to them speaking of which this movie is the includes the first appearance of Blurg, which are now popular because of the Mandalorian. Um, uh, I was I have many notes about how delighted I am to see stop motion Blurgs in this movie. Uh, I love stop motion. I love matte paintings. I love bad matte lines. I don't give a shit. I love it all. <laughs> I don't know. The teddy bear Ewok thing works for me. Even the fact that they don't like. When you see a picture of a bear or something in a wild, like, we're so used to watching cartoons or something, like, we expect them to be a lot more expressive than they are. They actually, their eyes don't give away a lot, and their faces don't move that much. They're very stoic creatures. They might have been accidentally more authentic to what a little bear animal might look like than, than they realized. 
And they did take the effort in the newer versions of Jedi and the endless fuckery that George Lucas does. He's digitally made them blink and made their faces oh, more like uh, articulated. I mean, over we, time. it's a whole other rank and review to dunk on the pointlessness of many of the additions to the Star Wars special editions. Um, I do agree, though. I find like in summary, for me, at least uh, this movie definitely hits a much better balance of nostalgia and payoff on on that the there's something to be said if you want to go back to that style of movie caravan of courage is also a practical effects juggernaut uh maybe juggernaut's not the right way to put it but like it is you know completely drenched in practical effects and so if you just want to go for it for that that hit it's there too but i would argue strongly that you can skip over caravan of courage uh, watch this movie, put in, like, the, all you need to know is that there was a family that I think went on vacation to go visit the site of the second battle of Endor, ran into car trouble, we're good to go. And it's probably to the movie's benefit that the brother dies, because he was pretty useless in the last film. Um, you don't need to know much to understand the underpinnings of the fantasy, and you can still appreciate the stuff that makes this movie good. And I don't think you need any knowledge of Star Wars to appreciate the stuff that makes the, this movie um, work, just because it is just a really good, by-the-book, 80s fantasy movie. Yeah, maybe not really good, but decent. Well, and again, this is just George Lucas working with the templates like he always does. You know, they say that you can just remove pieces and add them to like, like it's basically classic form storytelling. But he, it, there is something kind of like jarring about the gear shift that happens. Like I say, the movie is better in every way than the original, but like uh, it's a darker movie. It is like the Temple of Doom to this, the original's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, yeah. Yeah. this movie it is, is dark it, and crazy. With, but still maintaining so much of that really light, like, Looney Tunes Saturday morning kind of uh, flavor as well. So it's, uh, it, the, the tone shifts can be quite jarring scene to scene. I love the little Teak guy who could run super fast. And, uh, yeah. You talk about Wilfred Brimley, like he's doing a sort of classic curmudgeon-y character, but inside he's gooey soft, right? <laughs> Wilfred yeah. Brimley is like the guy who does this, but you need to rewatch The Thing if you don't know Wilfred Brimley. Wilfred Brimley's in John Carpenter's The Thing, and he's amazing in it. And uh, I always remember him from a weird uh, Tom Cruise movie, actually, called The Firm. He plays one of the bad guys in the firm, and he is a particularly irritating and hard-to-take to villain. Surprising, because usually he plays such a nice, soft, happy, grandfatherly figure. I, I do think Wilfred Brimley has some game, and, like, um, I don't know where he was in his career. or like It, it was a high-profile thing for him to be a part of, obviously. And uh, he doesn't phone it in. He doesn't feel like he's like no. a, a legit actor, like stuck in a kids' movie or whatever. Like you feel oh, him. He, he showed up to work. He loves that little girl, and he loves his little pet too. Like he, he tries to come off like a dick, but he's just a big old softy, and we see right through him. Right off the bat, there's a scene where uh, he. He's telling the Sindel and Wicket the Ewok to take off, take a hike. 
Uh, and then they had made him some biscuits. He's like, oh, these are really good. And then he looks at his pet, uh, Teak, and he says, make sure that you don't go hand those guys who are outside cold and alone these biscuits now. And then he turns his back for a really long time while Teak Sonic the Hedgehogs them some uh, biscuits and comes back. And that scene is a great, like, it's the microcosm of that character of, like, it doesn't matter what he puts on for show he cares earnestly about these people and he's gone through hardships himself uh we find out later in the movie that these um marauder characters have taken his uh his friend and partner and they just let him die and turn into a skeleton in a castle trying to figure out how to make um star engines work i guess yes they want to move their lord of the rings atmosphere into space somehow for some yes <laughs> Uh, I love the, that little Teak guy, too, this fine line between cute and ugly. Because, like, he's really kind of a grotesque-looking creature, but also strangely adorable. It's a weird line to draw, but, like, I think it actually achieves it. I agree. He definitely... He has, like, a, um, a real Henson's Workshop, uh, Muppet-adjacent type, like... We're going to have fun with this design while it's still being a puppet. I'm sorry, Ashley, you were bracing yourself for a black what, girl? For a a sort of a black cauldron situation with the character Gurgi, who just Mm. remains irritating throughout. Um, But Teak did grow on me as as it went. And I needed that. And here's the other thing I will say. uh, Going back to eight-year-old Larry, or I guess maybe nine-year-old when this one came out... uh, (laughs) Uh, I seem to intuitively understand after the beginning that the worst was over. Even as a little kid, the later we got into the movie, the less I felt the stakes of the movie. I wasn't worried that Wilfred Brimley was going to die. I didn't think Wicket was going to die. So, you know, like, the little girl wasn't going to, like, once that had happened, in a weird way, the rest of the movie was safe. It, it, <laughs> to, to contrast this with another children's movie, It... Once we see Georgie killed at the beginning of the movie, really in a lot of ways, the worst part's over, right? Is there anything else you guys want to say about Battle for Endor, the traumatizing movie from my childhood? I'm good. Yeah, um, much less traumatizing if you watch it before you see Caravan of Courage, probably. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, overall, toe in the line. Damn you, George Lucas. Apparently he did the same thing in his proposed sequels to Willow. Apparently the first thing he wanted to do for the sequel to Willow is like kill all of the characters we love except for Willow. <laughs> He's bloodthirsty, <laughs> that George yeah. Lucas. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. The captain says you are a friend. I will not kill you. Thanks. Much time. Every day they grow stronger. There is a 97.6% chance of failure. He means well. This is our chance. Are you with me? 
Rogue One. So once Disney had paid literally billions of dollars to get their hands on the Star Wars universe, there's a lot of questions. Or what are they going to do? How are they going to continue? How are they going to continue? But in a weird way, I think that for me, what I was most excited about was some of the standalone things. Uh, less so the origin stories of some of our beloved characters, but yeah, once you have Star Wars as a thing you can believe, like that's an impossibly huge world to play in. Why limit yourself to Luke Skywalker and Leia and that one corner of the universe? Why not show us some of these other areas? But the opportunity to a fix a what a lot of people thought was a weird plot problem that there was a built-in flaw in the death star um but the just the sort of mythical idea of how did they get the plans for the death star and how did that whole come about and many bothams died securing these plans right like um, they many just can't. Many bosses died securing the second Death Star. Many bosses died securing the but, second uh, Death Star. Thank plans. you, Eric. Thank you. Nerds. That's still a movie they can do. <laughs> That's right. We'll get back to that one. But you guys know what I'm saying. Like, the instinct was fan service. And this has sort of been the good and bad thing about the Disney era of Star Wars. They seem so eager to please and give us what we want that we're kind of getting overfed. They're just sort of <laughs> shoveling it in a little bit aggressively. I, I like the decision to, to do Gareth Edwards as a director. I know towards the end of the production he kind of left and they finished things off for him, including the epic Vader sequence apparently. But what he is really good at is making fantastical movies feel somehow strangely grounded. Even his Godzilla movie feels real-world Godzilla somehow. It might not be what you wanted from your Godzilla movie, but it's strangely closer to the intention of like the original Godzilla when it was not being played for like awe and spectacle. It was meant to be scary and sort of traumatizing. Uh, we don't want Star Wars to be scary and traumatizing, but right away, I feel in the movie. I feel in the world. I feel sort of possessed of like uh, in confident hands. And although we're wall-to-wall -wall special effects, the world feels real, gritty, tough, and tactile. So we're very far away from Caravan of Courage now. <laughs> so we settle on those groups of, of rebels and how they get mixed up in the Empire. And Felicity Jones is, you know, this classic, again, character tragically sees her parents taken from her at a young age, gets swept up in events beyond her control, and has a destiny that needs to be fulfilled. Um, the movie, like, is really good. My only frustration is that it's, it's close to being the one truly great, I think, Disney-era Star Wars movie. The fact that it's not quite great to me makes it weirdly frustrating. I have to settle with it just being really good. <laughs> but it gave me hope for where we were going to be going with Star Wars in Disney's hands. A hope that has, in the five years subsequently, I'm going to admit somewhat diminished. I come in a big fan of Rogue One. Admitted. Where does Ashley land? Going back to the idea of Disney having having Star Wars, having this whole big universe that they can whole universe they can play in, yeah. Disagree with. I, I like that we tried out some new characters. I 
I think that the the story overall in Rogue One is reasonably well thought out, and there are some segments of it that are really good, and there are some segments of it that are really stunning. But the overall movie is a slog for me. Hmm. I I couldn't get behind Jin Erso. I didn't feel like I knew who she was or what she wanted. Um, she was very much a, a tool of the plot. She was there because she needed to be. And I found the fan service moments in this completely jarring. There's things like running into Ponda Baba on the planet where they're um, extracting kyber crystals. Like, why? Yeah. Why is this here? He's going to be on Tatooine in days. Why are you... No, it's like you said. Like, they pick a fight on Jeddah, walk into a ship, land on Tatooine, and then basically, if, for the chronology to make sense, pick a fight with the next people they see. Well, it's like they needed to, like, be more know. sparing with it. Like, show us the monster chessboard, or show us the wanted in force system sign, or show us that character. But don't yeah. do all of those things. Don't pile it on like that. Like, we get it. Don't Thank you. stop the movie to show me something from a better movie. That's right. I found I found the rebel characters interest interesting but a little bit more frustrating. Um, I don't maybe maybe this is the part of me for whom Star Wars is still that idealistic rollicking kids, you know, fantasy world that I used to play in, but I find I found Cassian very dark for the Star Wars universe, really. The Rebels? Yeah. I get why everyone loves K2SO. I love K2SO. Yeah. I, I really appreciate um, the Guardian of the Wills is a great character um, and I'm, and who isn't a sucker for Darth Vader mowing down fucking Rebels left and right. Yeah. But the, the ex, there are some excellent pieces in this movie and they just don't fit together right for me. Well, I would even file the Darth Vader mowing down all those rebels as a fan service thing in the movie. I think the fact that it Absolutely. was that it was added late is probably because of that. Now, would I want it out of the movie or taken out of the movie? That's a different conversation, but it seriously didn't need to be there, and it's so much more badass than the beginning of the Star Wars movie that it almost feels incontinuous, right? Like, it seems like a yeah. different Darth Vader shows up in that next movie, and they're taking like, such you pains. To, you, you, you need to end this movie with someone doing something that really messes up Darth Vader's Darth Vader's cybernetic systems in order to explain why this is the same person who goes into the Obi-Wan fight. Exactly, exactly. Like, they don't feel connected. And the movie was trying so hard to be connected in that way. Um, I think that a lot of people had trouble with the tougher, grittier Star Wars, but in a way it was the move I hadn't been expecting from Disney. Like, uh, so I was sort of surprised, but in a good way for it. But let me say some negative things too because you're right there are problems and one of the big ones for me and i'm uncomfortable with it because i love the man is forrest whitaker 
What, what is Forrest Whitaker doing in the movie? Like, on paper, I get how, like, a rebel version of, like, a terrorist is kind of interesting. Like, he's on the rebel side, but he will torture a dude. He will, you know, do all sorts of bad things to get the job done. And what an interesting thing for us to explore, except not at all. Or maybe he's a mentor. Like, what is his relationship with Jen? I don't have an answer. I hope one of you guys do. I love the actor. I like the idea of his character, but it's completely pointless. If you cut his character out of the movie and someone else rescued Jim, I don't think that we would miss it at all. And that is a waste of Forrest Whitaker. If you're going to have Forrest Whitaker in your movie, I say use the man. I would agree, and I think that, again, going back to Cassian being so strangely dark for the Rebels, that if the, our main Rebels were portrayed more in the idealistic Luke Skywalker-y way that you, one would expect, that the terrorist cell would play more strongly. But as it is, we have some dark Rebels and some slightly darker Rebels, and I don't really see the difference. Right. Well, where does Eric land in all of this? I think this is definitely, uh, I mean, you, you guys sound like you're agreeing a lot, but it sounds to me like this is where we're going to kind of split off quite a bit. Like Ashley, I'm not a huge, huge fan of this movie. I don't actively dislike it. I, I definitely think, though, uh, that it is very overrated. People love the shit out of this movie. And honestly, I, every time I've watched it, I it, it feels distracting um, because the movie is just such a weird mess, uh, for like past the first half, like the first two thirds, like it, the movie, I describe it as like, it almost doesn't know what to do with its hands until it gets to Scarif and then everything aligns and you get the rogue one that it's meant to be to the point where I would say like, having watched this, uh, if I could go to. Uh, the story writers, one of which, uh, Gary Witta, is someone who I had been following since he was a games journalist in the UK. So it was really exciting for me to uh, hear about the guy who was talking about the Wii versus the PlayStation 3 end up writing a Star Wars. Um, the, uh, but, um, like, I would say, like, hey, have the whole movie be on Scarif. Whatever story you need to tell, tell it through that lens. Because trying to set up to make the attack on this archive uh, meaningful leads to almost every misstep in the movie. I will say that I don't think this movie has a bad story. I think the intention behind everything is good. To me, I, the the biggest uh, issue I have with it is generally editing. And it's not the worst editing offender on this list, but I think that First of all, just on like a micro scale, the first 10 minutes of this movie, I, I would say like the cutting of it deserves a Razzie. I think there's like, there's like the clips of, uh, in like Taken 3 of Liam Neeson, there's like 16 shots of him jumping over the fence or people show like, uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, the meeting with the producer where, uh, Queen, like it just keeps cutting between the members incomprehensibly. I would put this up there with those as like a, why did you decide to cut there? Why did you decide to cut there? I wasn't done looking at that thing. Why are we moving away? The scene's not meant to be 
um, disorienting. It's meant to be hectic, but that's different from disorienting. Uh, and it's a shame because I love Ben Mendelsohn, who plays uh, uh, Commander Krennic, and I love Mads Mikkelsen, who plays uh, 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 Galen Erso, uh, Jin's father, who, yeah, who is a Death Star designer. Uh, and I really want to watch a, sh- a scene of them both talking, but it just keeps cutting to things that I like. It's just so jostling. And then that scene ends and then we get a really quick cut to Jin being an adult and then a really quick cut to the title screen. And it's like, what was I doing here for this time? And it gets slightly better after that, but only slightly. Like I said, it doesn't find its landing until the end of the movie. We have, like, we cut to this defector uh, character who Galen, uh, in the future after the, uh, I don't know if it's a flashback or what you would call it, but the movie starts, I think, right after the title screen, we see uh, this defector from an Imperial pilot, and we quickly see him get caught up with the terrorist rebels, which I think is a really interesting idea. Uh, I would uh, argue it's underutilized in this movie. I'm not emotional. Like, like, I don't think that it's a fundamental flaw to have uh, uh, rebels that are just literal terrorists, which Forrest Whitaker and his crew is, or rebels that are more morally ambiguous like uh cassian andor uh who is played by diego luna um and i'm looking forward to his standalone uh, series like his introduction is we see him shoot a guy because i assume it would be more useful to have that guy be dead than to have him possibly blab to the stormtroopers that are about to arrest them yeah this in concept is fine typically we see the rebels like sacrificing their lives to buy time so other rebels can escape we don't typically see them executing fellow, fellow rebels to, you know, because there's no other way out for them. And, you know, death before being captured and tortured or whatever. It's a little bit harder than we're used to. Um, I think that the stuff that you're attributing to the editing, uh, I, I attribute more just to the story. Like, the, the fact that we cut from Jen's, of course, tragic childhood and her father's connection to the movie. These are all just necessary plot points to plug her into the world of Star Wars. And this is the reason we're following her character. But the movie is rushing through those points so quickly that you're right, some of the emotional punch is taken out of it. But I think that's just in the familiarity of that. I think there might have been a more interesting way to sort of figure out the flaw in the Death Star plans than her daddy did it. And the the second... She gets that sort of epiphany. Her dad dies in front of her. And, like, as much as that's cheesy and hardcore, I will give you guys this. You're Star Wars fans. That is very Star Wars. It is very Star Wars. Uh, it's straight down the middle. If we have a, if we have a spectrum, which he feels like they haven't made a decision. Right. It's not, yeah, it's not Obi-Wan Kenobi gets sliced but then turns into nothing before he get, before his clothes hit the ground. Uh, and it's also not, like, Vader dying in front of our eyes after being redeemed. Um, it's, it's definitely a, okay, the plot is done with you, goodbye. Um, and uh, there's so much stuff like that. We haven't even spoken yet, by the way, about uh, digital Tarkin, which is, the wrong the wrong choice and we're talking about things that are point like hey we don't need forrest whitaker and his terrorist rebels i would argue that's an interesting idea but i agree that it's not like it doesn't really service the movie at the end of it 
We do not need Tarkin. Tarkin didn't need to be in this movie. I think that there needed to be a test where some Kathleen Kennedy sat down. Someone said like, all right, this is the best that we could do with a digital Tarkin. And Kathleen Kennedy needed to watch that and then say, okay, write Tarkin out of the script because this is not happening. Um, it's so distracting. It's unnecessary. Uncanny Valley. Like we just know and we can feel that it doesn't track. And that, like, uh... I think that it's not just a problem with Star Wars. I think we're in the age where they're trying to play with this tech before they're ready. I think that It Chapter 2 and The Irishman are going to consequently age pretty poorly because we're right on the ground floor of this de-aging technology. And it's always a tricky place to be. So you risk being becoming the lawnmower man. You know, like, you're really amazing when you first come out, but... Every year that goes by, it, it sort of takes away, takes away, takes away. But um, it, it's an ambitious thing to do, and usually if it's... Uh, I sort of associate this with Robert Zemeckis. If the problem is they're trying to push forward the special effects, and I'm seeing where the sort of edges are there, I am a little bit more forgiving than it sounds like you guys are. <laughs> as soon as Tarkin came up, you both made this face like you'd, you know, someone had shit in your cereal, right? Like, <laughs> I got what they were going for, but I got how it didn't work. Same thing with young Leia. Yeah. Like, I got what they were going yeah. for, but I got that it didn't work. But I also think that for the most part, dramatically, the movie did work for me. It sounds like less so for you guys. I knew where the movie was going. I think anybody who was a halfway Star Wars fan knew where they were going. But my, I was watching the movie in the theater with my kids, which is my experience of the new Disney Star Wars, which, as we'll discuss going forward, does help to color my perception of some of these things. Um, I think when the robot got it, my boys knew that everybody was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay, once, once Alan Tudyk, once K2SO, is like once, once that happened... This movie isn't going to end like in any kind of happy place. But I think to the movie's credit, my boys were you know younger at the time. I think Tristan would have been eight or nine. Um, he was more upset when he talked about the movie to make him upset. He was upset and disappointed because he didn't get to see more of the story from The Force Awakens. When he was going to see the new Star Wars movie, he thought he would see more of that instead of going backward in time. So it was an adjustment for him there. And I remember him being cross. No, I don't care that everybody died. I just didn't get to see, you know, <laughs> what I expected to see. what happens with Ray and Finn. But it wasn't like my experience of Battle for Endor, for my boys is what I'm saying. Like, they watched the movie, they followed it. All of our characters died and, like, sacrificed themselves for this greater cause, arguably, and my boys weren't devastated by the movie. They thought it was cool, they thought it was a fun adventure, and, like, it it didn't gut them. And so I think in that way it was successful riding the line of making it a grittier, tougher Star Wars, but not overlining, like, going over the edge and losing your kid audience. Because if you lose the kids, then the whole game is over. Yeah. Because kids buy the merch. They do. Yes. Uh, we're getting long on Rogue One. Do you guys want to say anything in way of wrapping it up? I think, like, I said, I wanted it to be great. I think I'll have to settle on it being really good. But it sounds like you guys have a little bit more of a more of an issue here. Yeah. And I, I think part of 
it, part of my problem was that by the time I saw it, I had heard so much about it, and it was okay. Whenever a bunch of I people are know. telling you how amazing something is, it's hard not for it almost yeah. to default fall down a level in your expectations. I don't have much negative to say about the last 40 minutes, uh, but I think that there's so much, so many uh, decisions that don't land for this movie that I, I I really, I won't say I can't endorse it, but when it winds up where it winds up on my list, I'm, I'll say that I have said my points and I have even more that I could make if we had more time, apparently. after something is it revenge money or is it something else you look good a little rough around the edges but good heard about a job big shot gangster putting together crew I'm a driver, and I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. L3! Let go of the mean man's face. Who are these guys? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might want to buckle up, baby. So uh, it uh, it would be really easy to get mired down with the review of Han Solo of like all of the back ground stuff you know there was a different directing duo that was hired to write and direct and they were fired and then ron howard was brought in as a fixer and it was a big old mess blah 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 behind the scenes but i'm going to try and remove myself from that and just talk about the movie itself i mean um i think honestly for all the noise about han solo the problem with the movie to me was that it was absolutely everything that you would expect it to be if someone was to tell you what a Han Solo origin movie would be, and you were to close your eyes and just pitch a few ideas, you would say, well, we're going to see how he got involved with the Empire. We're going to see how he met Chewie. We're going to see how he met Lando. We'll probably do the Kessel Run. And, you know, we'll acquire some Millennium Falcon. But Yes. That is this movie. There is no surprise anywhere to be found in the movie. Really. I mean... I will start there. That is what the movie doesn't have going for it. What it, I think, and uh, I know I'm a little bit controversial opinion here, I think it does have energy going for it. It does have like this sort of rollicking sort of Han Solo vibe that they're trying to do. And I think that probably comes with the Kasdans being involved. Lawrence Kasdan and his son were involved in, in, in writing uh, some of the screenplay or I know that it was well messed with by the time we got to the version we got here. But there's a lot about the vibe about the movie that feels very Han Solo to me. And it's sort of freewheeling, sort of just barely getting there. 
Uh, he wins not because he's the best guy, but because he refuses to lose kind of vibe of the movie. That stuff works for me. The pseudo-mentor relationship that we are developing with Woody Harrelson, although again familiar, works well enough for me. So I have fun with the movie while at the same time having this weird experience because it was the first time I watched the movie that I had it. I felt like I'd seen the movie even though I hadn't seen the movie. It was like I was watching a rerun, but I wasn't really watching a rerun. Um, so obviously it wasn't what the movie, like what Disney wanted it to be. It was the most underperforming Star Wars movie in history. And um, I don't think it deserves the hate. I don't think I fully understand the hate. I actually have a lot of sympathy for Alden Ehrenreich, the guy who was unlucky enough to be cast in the role of Han Solo, because I think he's working his ass off to try and give us young, hyped Han, you know, Harrison Ford. The problem is not that he's a bad actor. The problem is that he's not Harrison Ford. But they didn't digitally de-age Harrison Ford to make the movie, which would have been, of course, we'll all agree, the much worse choice to go about it. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm like a, a guy who cheers for the underdog. I give it a shrugging pass. I don't think it's as terrible as everyone you know says it is. Does it have things that are problematic? And was I, like unexcited by it like I should be more excited it's a fucking Star Wars movie I should be more excited about it I will definitely say that I think that maybe the good bad and ugly about Han Solo is it's fine <laughs> and maybe the Star Wars fan base just can't deal with fine it's either amazing or it's the worst but they don't know how to handle fine and in the end of the day that's what it is Despite the presence of all these stars, you know, Donald Glover kind of killing it as Lando Calrissian, the movie's just, it's, it's fine. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> That's where I land on Han Solo. <laughs> no one else has anything to say? I've, I've just covered it completely. Uh, you nailed it. <laughs> uh, actually, you're up. More or less. My... I think uh, my, so. My major movie maintenance on on this film is to cut everything from the first twenty minutes and just start with Han Solo, Imperial Cadet, right. because nothing before that matters. Um, I I prefer that we meet Kira when he re meets her. That would give her a little bit of a, a mystery, a little bit of oh, who is this? What is there? connection uh rather rather than everything just being spelled out straight up um the first 20 minutes was was a flog where almost nothing was achieved and then after that it's a fine action adventure um heist film and poor poor miscast is working so so hard and trying his very very best but he does not have Harrison Ford energy and it just kicks me right out of this being a movie about Han Solo. Uh, I, I can do fancy little headcanon things to get myself around it, but uh, 
beyond that, it, it's it's fine. Uh, I maybe don't love that he ends up with the Millennium Falcon. I'd like I'd like that to be you know oh maybe this was an ongoing thing where Lando and Han would win the Falcon back and forth between each other for years to come, and they had this ongoing rivalry that's the head cannon. I like the head cannon. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, overall, it, like, putting aside all of the backstage drama, it, it's fine. It just has one major casting problem, and that's... A big one. You know, not the actor's fault. Well, um, I... I it, it's made who all would the worse do the because job? Donald Glover is bang on. Donald Glover is bang on Lando Calrissian. Um... And there's an Australian actor whose name escapes me at the moment, but who is Harrison Ford enough that they had him play young Harrison Ford in the same movie, uh, Age of Adeline. I can't get into the IMDb right, right now to look up uh, his name. But that, that was my cast immediately when they said they were doing the Han Solo movie. Right. And uh, it, I've been a defender one, of... It's one major misstep. I think it's Ehrenreich. Alden Ehrenreich is how you say yeah. his name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, I've seen him in other things. I do think he's a good actor, and I do think that would be a tough thing. Like, short of Julian Moore being cast as, like, Clarice Starling in Hannibal, like, once you're in playing a role that has been so defined by another actor, it's a, it's a really tough thing. So, like, I tried to be more forgiving of that. I am less forgiving of the Amelia Clark. I don't know if it's the actress or the character, but I did not connect with her. Apparently she's amazing in Game of Thrones, but I know her from this and Terminator, and I am not super impressed with her so far. There's just the... Uh, I mean, she didn't have a lot to do in the movie, to be fair, but, like, uh, like I, I don't know. I, I felt like I should have felt more about her turn one way or the other. I, I just felt weirdly indifferent to her entire presence in the movie. Like, all of the characters in, in Woody Harrelson's little gang, Thandie Newton, that little four-armed guy, and all of those, like, we, we barely was he, got he was played by John Favreau, wasn't he? Yeah, that was the voice. Uh, we barely got to see those people, but I liked and cared about them so quickly, uh, so, like, in a way that these other characters failed to accomplish. And, in a way, if this is the main love interest of Han Solo... This is a much more important character to get right than one of the expendable, you know, pirates or whatever. Uh, where's Eric landing on that? It's interesting. You don't want to go into like the the um, backstory of it because I do feel like the the zeitgeist surrounding this movie is it plays a large role in how it was received. Um, I think there's there's a lot like people had their knives out for this film at this point. Uh, I think people were a little bit, um, burned by, uh, the last Jedi. Uh, there was this, um, there's like, the, the movie was kind of plagued by issues. And then on top of that, people kind of wanted to see it fail because I think the fandom really had this idea in their head collectively that, we will punish Disney for making a Han Solo backstory that no one wanted, and then they'll learn. Uh, and it really... I'll get more into the circumstances of a movie coming out as we talk about The Force Awakens, which I guess is up next. But this... Biting the hand that feeds like that is not an effective way to get good Star Warses. Because if you're Disney, 
You have to, like, honestly, Rogue One was already probably riskier, as you said, than one would expect. And so you're Disney, you're like, yeah, we just spent a bunch of money on this Star Wars property. We need to make money back from it. First thing, Episode 7 is the safest thing that you can do. Um, Rogue One it was its own surprise. Uh, but this movie, you weren't going to get, uh, like, you know, oh, it's Star Wars, but it's about an orphan in the pits of Coruscant and you don't see any Jedi. And you, like, those kinds of stories just structurally they cannot come into existence until Disney feels comfortable enough to play with the property. And it's a double-edged sword because you don't want to reward them for doing something that's too bland. But also, like I said, if you bite the hand that feeds, Disney's lesson from this was that Star Wars movies are not guaranteed to be blockbusters. Therefore, we should stop making Star Wars movies. They canceled a rumored Boba Fett project that was in development. I forget which director was supposed to do it. It was the guy who did Chronicle. He was also running into some issues on his own because he had done a fantastic, the Fantastic Four film that had both bombed and um, he had acted unprofessional surrounding the uh, backlash to, or his, his backlash to it bombing. So they quietly canceled that project. They canceled everything else other than, uh, at this point, episode, uh, um, whatchamacallit, uh, episode, uh, the, the, what, Rise of Skywalker, um, episode eight, um, no, sorry, episode nine, um, and now we're sitting here in the year 2021, and the next Star Wars feature film is set to be Rogue, uh, Squadron, uh, coming out in 2023, and I'll tell you guys this, to everyone who's listening, if Rogue Squadron does not do well, we might never see a feature film in theaters for Star Wars. Maybe not never again, but it's not going to be a guaranteed thing. Um, and so with that being... But how do I feel about Han Solo? Then, uh, in a, so to get to that, yeah, there was a lot of anger about this movie ahead of time uh, with people getting ready for it to be uninspired. Um, and... I will say, I think this movie is fantastic. Like, I think it's a really strong film. I think that uh, narrative innovation is not overrated. It's always good, but it's not the stick by which we measure a bunch of movies. And it's kind of baffling to me that a lot of people have this opinion. And I'm not saying you specifically, Larry, but a lot of people will have this like, ah, this is the story I expected. It doesn't tread any new ground. And then they'll salivate at the next Marvel movie. Um, where, like, it's formulated to a T. I think this movie, every time I've watched it, I've appreciated it more. Every time I've watched it, I, I am not distracted by Alden L. Uh, Ehrenreich, uh, uh, as Han Solo. Definitely, if you look at him and go, like, this is a guy playing Harrison Ford, you're never gonna get over that hump, because he is not playing Harrison Ford. And I'm really sorry, Ashley, that that is how the movie is for you because it, it is a it is a complete barrier to being able to enjoy it um but once you're past that barrier if you're looking at him either as han solo the character or just like han solo in the film solo a star wars movie just take this character for what he is worth i find him incredibly enjoyable very energetic sympathetic to a to a very important degree I don't think many of the plot beats in the movie are surprising, but I think they're all handled very well. I think for uh, um, Amelia Clark's character, uh, Kira, she, I, I'll say, in Game of Thrones, I think her character is more interesting than maybe she is. I don't know that I've seen the thing that makes me go, Amelia Clark is like a fantastic, fantastic uh, actor. 
Um, but I think the important thing for that character is not the character. It's how Han Solo feels about her because it drives Han Solo's decisions. And I found her character effective in that I was constantly tense because I'm like, I know my man Han Solo has feelings for her. It's not a romance movie. It doesn't matter what their chemistry is. What matters is that Han likes her enough to make a bad decision. And her the point of bringing in the crime syndicates and showing Paul Bettany murdering fools uh, at a whim is stressing that Han Solo is in a dangerous position and he is very liable to make the wrong choice. We know he's not going to because it's a Star Wars movie and it's, you know, dot, 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 dot. But it adds tension to scenes that otherwise wouldn't and i don't think that we need to be necessarily involved in their relationship to un- to be empathetic to his position for kira which is why i also do think that the beginning is effective because we do need to see that he has this attachment if he bumps into kira later on then all that stuff i just mentioned has absolutely nowhere to land uh also john williams wrote the main theme which i think is why it's been stuck in my head for the last week um the uh, I, to the momentum thing, like even at the beginning, we start in a car chase, like yeah. it, it, it's always trying moving or at least trying to be moving at a good clip. So if it's if it's not essential, it's at least trying to be exciting. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think like the the thing that I'll say about this movie is that for whatever isn't maybe as great as it could be, there's very little, I would argue, that's bad. There is very little in this movie that was done incorrectly. And given that it had basically two and a half production cycles uh, between switching directors and um, the story being uh, handed over uh, to... I don't Because I don't think Jonathan and Lawrence Kasdan started. I think that it started uh, as a... Um, a, uh, a, T, uh, a Miller and Lord, uh, because they were the original act, uh, directors, the people who made the Lego movie, and now uh, Into the Spider-Verse. It started as their story, and then it got handed off to uh, Jonathan and Lawrence Kasdan and Ron Howard to direct. And I would be interested in seeing their version of the movie. Um, but I think having gone through that many trading of hands, that's a lot of cooks for the stew to turn out as good as it did. I think that there's certainly room for people to nitpick about like, oh, it could have been better. It should have been better. It shouldn't have been made at all. But if you sit down and you just watch this movie at face value, it hits those notes. It hits them really strong. And for a movie that is an origin story, and it does do a lot of things right on the nose, like... He goes into the Imperial thing, and he's like, oh, what's your last name? And he's like, I don't have a last name. I don't have a family or people. And the guy goes, cool, your name is Han Solo. Like, that's lame. That's dumb. That's not needed. There's also a lot that's very understated. For us not knowing much about Kira, the movie does a good job of not stopping the movie to flash back to the terrible things she's done that's put her in this position. We don't get, like, a monologue of... Uh, oh, this is what the last three years have been like for me. We There's a lot, like, just in character design, um, uh, 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 Dross, uh, the Paul Bettany character, uh, Viden? I'm just going to look it right up. Dryden Voss. Uh, he has these scars that flare up like octopus's skin when he's angry. And, like, who are those wounds? Is that, like, how his skin... Is he a different creature? I don't know, and we don't need to know because the movie says more than it needs to about certain origin story stuff, for sure. But it also is surprisingly uh, understated in some things that could have been 
uh, very point batty, where they're like, hey, don't you get it? This thing, this is, look at how tragic Kira's backstory is. Look at how dangerous, like, it, it says what it needs to say, and it gets out, all while keeping energy, all while having things that are true to these characters. And the fun is what I appreciate about the movie. I mean, we talked about fan service. I think that this movie is fan service. Front to back, beginning, middle, and end. You could say, oh, you know, the Darth Maul thing is fan service. No, the entire movie is fan service. And I think what's really confusing to Disney is that they gave us exactly what we were supposed to want, and it bombed. And that has to be confusing to the point of terrifying to them. Like, they fired the original directors because they were being too weird and crazy and silly with it. No, no, we're going to give them Star Wars and we're going to give them exactly what they want. That's where like, I, I go back to, like, I think it's fun and it's enjoyable. I think it's good. I, I don't think I can go to the fever of enthusiasm that, that Eric seems to be talking about it here. Like, I, I, I feel like I, I'm happy that it came together. And in, in a lot of ways, it's one of those things that shouldn't have, like, there's way too much going on bad in the background that this should just be wall-to-wall awful. And that seems to be how it's treated. I don't think it's awful, but I think the reason that it's not been rewarded is that they didn't take any creative risk with this movie. At all. I mean, this. I think that that's the, if that's the, the only real problem with the movie. Like, everything works about it. They're all trying to not bring in... Sorry, Ashley, say again? Yeah, and then like we're we're all trying not to bring in you know the externals to and and we can do that in our opinions on this movie, um, but in terms of what Disney saw, Solo got punished because a loud segment of the fan base were upset by the Last Jedi. It, Solo isn't bad. It, Disney is not always the problem. Sometimes the um, fans are the problem. Hell, most of the time the fans are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, uh, is there anything else you want to say, Ashley? We're almost at twenty minutes on Han Solo again here. So. Um, yeah, I just I and I, I recognize that it's a me block that I can't get over. You know, the one major hurdle, or you know, a lot of little things that bother why. Like I find I found the the writing of the character Han to be almost too naive, too idealistic. Um, it's and kind of kind of a whip flash. And you know, uh, maybe if there were if this movie had done well, if there had been a bunch more uh, Han Solo movies, weak. They were trying to please everyone, and in a way, like. I think, first of all, you can't please the Star Wars fan base. Like I say, you, there's there's certain percentage of them that it either has to be the greatest movie that's ever happened, or it's not good enough. Or, you know, they're just like the typical fans like us, who there's going to be stuff we like, and there's going to be stuff we don't like, and we're going to talk about it endlessly. But the idea of just knocking it out of the park, well, that's already happened. That's That's kind of what you paid your money for. That was the brand of Star Wars. Like I say, I think the mistake... And again, I don't want to jump right into the the actual trilogy that we're about to talk about. But I think the mistake was with those movies was that as we go through them, it seems more increasingly obvious that they didn't have a plan. And maybe the mistake for me with the Han Solo movie is that the plan was just the most easy, obvious, straight, narrow path to success. And they got spanked for it. 
and I think that scared them. Um, and that, what does that mean? Does that mean that next time they need to take the risk? Because they took a risk with The Last Jedi, and they got spanked. And they made a safe movie with Han Solo, and they got spanked. It's tough. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking, listeners. Well, where's the Christmas special? Have you no holiday spirit? I thought you were going to be covering the Star Wars franchise. Are we just going to, like, pretend it didn't happen? Well, I'm not going to pretend it didn't happen. But as a person who values my guests and understands the commitment that they make to being on Rank and Review, making them watch six or more movies is a fair chore. I didn't know who I would want to subject the Star Wars Christmas special to. I think, you know, hearing Carrie Fisher sing that terrible, wookie, festive song is some of the most uncomfortable stretch of anything in the Star Wars universe. I think that it is less credible, credibly part of the Star Wars universe than even these Ewok movies that we previously talked about. But in case you somehow thought that I managed to, you know, get through this and I'm somehow unaware of the Star Wars Christmas special. Oh, I am aware. I am aware. When I was a kid, I could maybe tell myself that the animated parts were cool. But even as a child, the Muppet episode that had the droids was a considerably better Star Wars injection than the Star Wars Christmas special. So I, I just have too much love for, you know, for Ashley and for Eric to, to make them sit through that. And uh, I love Star Wars too much, and they love Star Wars too much for that to be a fair thing to ask of them, or really anybody. But I just wanted to, you know, give it a little bit of a mention because I am aware of it. It just, it just, I don't know what we would do other than cry for a full half an hour to review that. So, if if my listeners demand it, maybe the day will come. But today was not the day. And uh, if you're asking yourself, well, what about the new Disney trilogy, the movie that all of the nerds are united in loving, right? Right? <laughs> when are we going to talk about that? Well, we are going to tackle that later this season on R&R. So I'm just going to ask you to indulge my patience or, or indulge your patience. I've lost the power of speech. The point is, I know you guys love the Star Wars. I love the Star Wars. There'll be more Star Wars later in the season with Ashley and Eric, of course, joining me to talk about the very divisive Disney trilogy. But until then, we, you know, count on it. We will return to a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago. Uh, but for the time being, just big thanks to all the Star Wars fans out there. Big love to Eric and Ashley. Looking forward to doing more work with you guys. And, uh, Thank you so much. If you have feedback for Rank and Review, you can send that feedback to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And uh, if you would like to check out the website, check that out at rankandreview.ca. And rest assured, there will be a new Rank and Review usually every other Wednesday. Big love from your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. And we'll see you 
next time.